Welcome to a special preview of the audiobook version of the Summer of 1876, Outlaws, Lawmen, and Legends in the Season that Defined the American West. I've received lots of questions about the audiobook, so here are some answers. First, it will be available on May 30th, just like the hardcover version. Second, it's available to pre-order right now, just like the hardcover version. Third, it's available on all the standard listening platforms, Audible, Google Play, Apple Books or iTunes, Amazon, etc. It's on all of them. Fourth, and this is the big one, I am not doing the full narration. I did record the preface at the beginning and the acknowledgments at the end, but a pro is reading the bulk of the book. Most audiobooks don't include the acknowledgments section, but this is a special case. It includes an interesting short story about how this book came to life. And Legends of the Old West listeners especially, if you buy the audiobook, listen all the way to the end, to the very last thing that's said. I want you to hear that. Now, a professional audiobook narrator named Johnny Heller recorded the main part of the book, and I think he did a great job. Those of you who have listened to audiobooks about the Old West might be familiar with his voice. He's read lots of good ones, and I'm glad he was willing to jump on board for this project. I am not a professional narrator. I have no training in this kind of thing, and honestly, it's the hardest part of the whole process for me. I wasn't looking forward to trying to narrate a book at the speed at which it has to be produced. So it's great that Johnny's doing the heavy lifting here. With all that said, let's get to the preview. I picked a chapter that has plenty of action and will give you a little taste of how the different storylines are woven together. I now pass you into the capable hands of Johnny Heller. Chapter 6. The Battle of the Rosebud White Earp and Bat Masterson walked the streets of Dodge City with no idea of the forces that were converging in Montana territory. The warlike conditions that were brewing 600 miles northwest of Kansas were unknown to nearly everyone as spring turned to summer in 1876. General Sheridan, who was at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, received updates through his headquarters in Chicago. But communications were intermittent and lacked substance because, quite simply, there was little substance to report. Libby Custer and the other wives at Fort Lincoln received letters from their husbands in the Dakota column, but the intelligence could only be about the weather or musings about the journey. Column was still a month away from spotting a hostile Indian. The reporters with the Dakota and Wyoming columns filed dispatches with their various news outlets, but the drudgery of marching for hours each day didn't provide the juicy details that would thrill readers and sell newspapers. In Dodge, White and Bat and the rest of the lawmen were far more concerned with corralling the rowdy activities of the cowboys who entertained themselves south of the deadline. Front Street was the main thoroughfare of Dodge City, and the town found itself in a situation that was much like Deadwood's. In Deadwood, the upper end of Main Street was the more civilized, respectable area. The lower end was known as the Badlands. That area was home to most of the saloons and brothels. In Dodge, the north end of Front Street was the respectable area, and the south end was the entertainment district. The dividing line between north and south was the tracks of the Santa Fe Railroad, and the division became known as the Front Street Deadline. In the summer of 1876, Wyatt, Bat, Jim Masterson, and the others tried to confine the worst of the shenanigans to the south end of Front Street. That summer, the lawmen of Dodge City were tasked with enforcing some new laws. 
two of which were that it was now illegal to take a horse or any other animal into a saloon, and it was illegal to carry a gun north of the deadline. When cowboys try to trespass with a weapon or carry their excessive celebrations above the deadline, they quickly learn two things. Wyatt was an above-average boxer, and he was an enthusiastic practitioner of the art of buffaloing. If there was one overarching mandate in Dodge City in 1876, it was to reduce the number of killings. The lawmen were wholeheartedly on board with the policy. They didn't join the force to become hired gunmen. In short order and probably led by Wyatt, the deputies in Dodge ended altercations and prevented potential gunfights by bashing the offenders on the head with the butt of a pistol. The swift skull-cracking blows usually knocked the recipient out or dropped him to his knees while draining him of the desire and ability to continue his prior behavior. Either way, the Buffalo defender was hauled off to jail to spend a painful night sobering up. But headaches were better than murders, so it was hard to argue too forcefully against the tactic. In the instances when Wyatt couldn't get the drop on a troublemaker and whack him over the head, he stepped into a straight-up street fight. Two examples typically rise to the top of the list for noted authors and historians. In the first, a group of cowboys arrived in town at the end of a long, dusty trip from Texas. As always, they were primed to spend their wages in the most exuberant ways possible. This particular group wanted to begin its night north of the deadline. New assistant marshal Wyatt Earp stopped them at the line and informed them of their options. They could stay south of the line and keep their guns, or they could go north of the line but give up their guns. The cowboys bristled at restrictions of any kind, and the biggest man in the group stepped forward to demonstrate to the lawmen that they would keep their guns and go where they pleased. Wyatt wasted no time. He swung a fist at the man's mouth. He drove a punch into the man's gut. Then he hit the man in the mouth a second time and sent him sprawling into the dirt of Front Street. The cowboy was out cold and the fight was over before the Texan knew it began. The cowboy's friends dragged him out of the street and the group prudently decided to spend its time south of the deadline. The second incident ended with a similar result, but it took a much greater toll on Wyatt. A group of Texas cowboys confronted Bat and Wyatt and loudly voiced their protests about the new laws in Dodge City. The biggest cowboy in the group stepped forward to challenge the lawmen. Wyatt unbuckled his gun belt and handed it to Bat. Wyatt and the cowboy launched into their fight, and Wyatt eventually knocked the Texan out, but not before the Texan battered, bruised, and bloodied the assistant marshal. With the first cowboy down, Wyatt glared at the others and asked if anyone else wanted to fight. Somewhat surprisingly, another member of the group stepped forward. Wyatt made quick work of him and then waited to see if there were any more challengers. The others decided two knockouts were enough, and they dragged their friends out of the street without any further conflict. Wyatt and Bat continued their rounds and settled into a routine in the early days of summer. So far, so good. There was plenty of raucous behavior south of the deadline, but it didn't venture north nearly as often as it had in the past, and there were no murders thus far. Bat, Wyatt, Jim Masterson, and the full host of lawmen aimed to keep it that way. And while they firmly established a new law in Dodge, events on the northern plains rapidly moved toward the first explosive collision. General Terry's hope for a swift campaign was dashed at the end of May, and he resigned himself to the long haul in early June. The Dakota Column had marched west out of Fort Lincoln for 12 days until it reached the Little Missouri River at the edge of Dakota Territory. The initial stage of the march crossed a flat, grassy prairie. But when the column reached the valley around the Little Missouri, the landscape changed. 
the prairie was replaced by rocky canyons and craggy ravines that made the next few days agonizing for men and animals alike. The soldiers, horses, mules, and cattle in the column tentatively descended each jagged cut in the earth and then trudged up the other side, and then repeated the process at the next obstacle. The column traversed the canyons for three days before blessedly reaching the banks of the Little Missouri. At that point, Custer led a brief scout south along the river until the waterway made a sharp turn to the west. At the turn, he circled back and reported to Terry. He confirmed the news that many already suspected. There were no hostile Indians near the Little Missouri. The tribes that may have been there during the winter months, when General Sheridan wanted the expedition to begin, had moved. The most likely destination was the fertile hunting ground around the Powder River to the southwest, which meant the expedition had just been extended indefinitely. As if to emphasize the coming misery, the weather dealt the column a painful gut punch. A freak snowstorm engulfed the soldiers and animals between May 31st and June 1st. Blizzards in the late spring were rare but not unheard of. The storm dumped six inches of snow on the Dakota column and forced it to stay in camp for two days. When the sun blissfully returned and melted the snow, the column readied itself to continue its march to the west. But then three riders appeared in the distance. They were clearly soldiers, but their identities were unknown. They turned out to be the couriers from Colonel Gibbon's column with news of the first sighting of a Native American village. When Terry read the message, he learned about the village, but also that Gibbon was now marching away from it. Technically, Gibbon was doing what he was supposed to do. Terry's original orders to Gibbon were to lead the Montana column along the Yellowstone River toward a rendezvous with Terry. But now that Gibbon had spotted a village and Terry knew there were no signs of camps on the Little Missouri, Terry sent the couriers back to Gibbon with orders to turn around. Gibbon should march back to the junction of the Yellowstone and the Rosebud and reestablish the camp from which he had discovered the village. Terry would meet him there, and that would be the new rendezvous point. For the next week, the Dakota column moved on a steady course to the southwest, along a parallel track to the Yellowstone River. The Yellowstone was still many miles north of the column, but the territory between the regiment and the river was so desolate that the column skirted south to avoid it. Terry's initial plan was to set up a supply depot next to the Yellowstone near the modern-day town of Glendive. But after reading Gibbon's news, Terry wanted to shift the location farther west to the junction of the Yellowstone and the Powder. Now the column trekked through some of the harshest landscape of the campaign. Even with a jog to the south, the regiment couldn't fully avoid the badlands of eastern Montana. Rugged ravines and ridges continued to plague the regiment. The grasslands of central Dakota were now a distant memory. They were replaced by bare rock and clumps of prickly pear cactus. And the sun was relentless. The column received the full treatment of life on the northern plains. The expedition began with a miserable combination of rain and fog. That gave way to warm spring weather. Then a blizzard pounded the column at a time when the rest of the country was celebrating summer, and now the sun blazed in a clear blue sky that seemed so vast and all-encompassing that it threatened to swallow the soldiers. There were a few specimens worthy of being cold trees, and the confusing geographical features were enough to disorient even the most seasoned guides in the column. On June 7th, with significant help from Custer as an advanced scout, the column reached the Powder River. The heart of the tribal hunting grounds was to the south, but it was immediately clear why the Lakota and Cheyenne valued the area so fiercely. The barren, near-alien landscape of the past few days transformed into rolling, grassy hills with wooded areas along the watercourses. The region certainly held promise as a hunter's paradise. 
Terry instructed Custard to remain on the Powder River and prepped the men for the next leg of the journey. Rosebud Creek, the last known position of the village, was still 70 miles to the west. While Custer and most of the regiment rested and hunted, Terry led two companies north to the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Powder. There, for the first time in three weeks, General Terry gazed upon a welcome sight, a paddle steamer called the Far West. The U.S. government chartered two paddle steamers to support the expedition, the Far West and the Josephine, and the Far West now waited with its crew of 30 for Terry's arrival. The boats had established a supply depot, as ordered, at a crude fort called Stanley Stockade at the confluence of Glendive Creek and the Yellowstone River. The rough outpost had been built during Custer's Yellowstone Expedition in 1873, and now it acted as a warehouse for supplies that had been shuttled from Fort Lincoln. The Far West had moved farther upriver to the Yellowstone's junction with the powder, and now it sat in the water like a floating sanctuary for General Terry. Captain Grant Marsh piloted the steamer, and by 1876 he was known as the best riverboat captain in the region. He had spent 30 years navigating the waterways of the upper Midwest and the Northern Plains, and he knew the Yellowstone better than anyone. And though the sight of Marsh and the Far West was inviting, Terry received frustrating news when he stepped on board. The expedition had been nothing but aggravating thus far, and here was one more layer. His message to Colonel Gibbon had not been delivered. Gibbon and the Montana Column were still leisurely marching down the Yellowstone instead of retracing their steps to the Rosebud so that they would be within striking distance of the village. Terry immediately sent couriers to Gibbon's command to tell him to stop. Early the next morning, June 9th, Terry instructed Marsh to steam upriver to meet Gibbon. It was time for a conference and an updated planning session. They spotted Gibbon five miles downriver from the Montana Columns camp and ushered him on board. Gibbon and Terry huddled for two hours as they both relayed the events of the past three weeks. To add to Terry's frustration, Gibbon had not left a surveillance team to maintain visual contact with the village. The last sighting on May 27th was now 12 days old. Given the frequent travel habits of the tribes, the village could now be near any of a dozen rivers or creeks in the area. Terry reiterated his order. Gibbon needed to turn around and march approximately 55 miles back to his former station at the junction of the Rosebud and the Yellowstone. With any luck, the village hadn't strayed too far from Rosebud Creek. Neither commander had heard a word from General Crook, but they believed the combined force of the Montana Column and the Dakota Column, more than 1,600 soldiers, should be enough to whip a Native American army of any size. Terry returned to the Dakota Column's camp on the Powder River on the evening of June 9th, and he met with his officers in the morning of June 10th. There was a new plan. The Montana Column would hustle back to the Rosebud and set up camp. The Dakota Column would split into its two wings and move in separate directions for a few days. The right wing, led by Major Marcus Reno, would scout south along the Powder River and then head west to the Tongue River to search for any sign of a village. The left wing, led by Custer, would essentially do a mirror image maneuver. It would march north along the Powder until it reached the Yellowstone and then turn west until it reached the junction of the Tongue and the Yellowstone. At that spot, the two wings would reunite and, if no hostiles had been sighted, continue up the Yellowstone until they connected with the Montana Column. The plan thrilled Reno, disgusted Custer, and surprised everyone else. The entire regiment, and particularly Custer, was accustomed to Custer leading scouting missions. But Custer's insatiable need to freelance had tested Terry's patience one too many times in the march. 
Now Terry gave command of the reconnaissance patrol to Reno, and the major could not have been more excited to finally break away from the column and prove himself in the field. Terry's order was designed more to put Custer in his place than to reward Reno with an opportunity, and Terry probably had an ulterior motive as well. It was highly unlikely that a village would be anywhere around Reno Scout, so it cost Terry nothing to let Reno traipse around the region and confirm that the enemy was, in fact, not there. That afternoon, Reno and 300 soldiers rode south along the Powder River to begin a scout that was expected to last six or seven days. The next morning, June 11th, Custer and the left wing began their casual march north toward the Yellowstone River. While the two wings of the Dakota Column trotted through the Powder River country of southeastern Montana, they had no idea that General Crook's Wyoming Column had crossed into south-central Montana. Less than 100 miles from the Dakota Column, the Wyoming Column was about to find itself in a fight for its life. Crook's men would need desperate maneuvers to stave off total disaster. The same day Custer's left wing started its march toward the Yellowstone, General George Crook's column established Camp Cloud Peak on Goose Creek in northern Wyoming Territory. The base camp was near the present-day city of Sheridan, Wyoming, and just a few miles short of the Montana border. At the time, Crook was approximately 150 miles southwest of the other columns, but he made no attempt to communicate his position to Terry or Gibbon. The Wyoming column had been on the move for 13 days and had followed the same route it took in mid-March. The column set up its camp on Goose Creek, which was a tributary of the Tongue River, and planned to follow the creek up to the Tongue River and into southern Montana. During the previous expedition, the unit had marched nearly halfway to the junction of the Tongue and the Yellowstone before turning back and then ultimately striking the Cheyenne Village and the Powder River. Exactly three months later, the column wouldn't make it nearly that far. On the morning of June 16th, Crook left his supply wagons and pack train at the base camp and ventured north with roughly 1,300 men. Crook's Crow scouts believed the Lakota and Cheyenne were somewhere on the Tongue River. But one of Crook's civilian guides, Frank Garrard, examined the signs and said the tribes were camped farther west than the Rosebud. Crook angled the column toward Rosebud Creek and pushed the troops through a hard 33-mile march before they stopped for the night just a few miles from the mouth of the Rosebud. Frank Rourard was right. The Wyoming column wouldn't know it for sure until the next day, but Sitting Bull's enormous village was about 50 miles away on the banks of the Rosebud. Two Cheyenne hunting parties spotted the immense column on the afternoon of the 16th and raced back to the village with the news. By mid-June, the population of the village qualified it as a good-sized town. Nearly every non-treaty band on the northern plains had joined the group. Hundreds had streamed in from the agencies, and with soldiers just 50 miles from the women and children, there was no way Sitting Bull or any of the other old man chiefs could hold back the tidal wave of warriors that burst from the village. Sitting Bull wouldn't fight, for good reason, but it was time to fight nonetheless. For months, the village had moved and stayed away from the soldiers while it grew in strength and size, but the time for cautious avoidance was done, and after Sitting Bull's recent vision, he knew battle was inevitable. Sitting Bull elicited nearly unprecedented levels of respect from the tribes of the Northern Plains. He was a powerful medicine man, a fearless warrior, and a proven battlefield commander. His legend truly began about 20 years earlier, when he was 25 years old. He and a group of Lakota warriors went on a horse-stealing raid against their hated enemies, the Crow. Oftentimes, the raids turned into battles, and this one looked like it might be headed in that direction. But then the two sides settled into a tense standoff. 
Sitting Bull stepped forward from the line of Lakota warriors. He held a musket in one hand and a buffalo hide shield in the other. He shouted across the gap to the crow and challenged their chief to one-on-one -on -one combat. The chief stepped forward and accepted the challenge. The chief and the young warrior charged at each other. As Sitting Bull ran, he sang a song about bravery in battle. The crow dropped to one knee. He flipped his musket up to his shoulder and fired at Sitting Bull. The ball slammed into Sitting Bull's shield and ricocheted down toward his left foot. It tore into his foot behind his big toe and exited below his heel. But now it was Sitting Bull's turn to shoot. He dropped to one knee, raised his musket, and fired. Through the cloud of black powder smoke, the battle lines of Crow and Lakota warriors watched the Crow chief topple to the ground. Sitting Bull limped over to the fallen man, took out his knife, and stabbed the chief in the heart. After the frightening display, the Crow turned and ran, and Sitting Bull was a warrior of unquestioned courage. In the 20 years since the killing of the Crow chief, Sitting Bull had led his people in clashes against other tribes, white travelers and white soldiers. In the 1860s, while Red Cloud conducted his war in Wyoming, Sitting Bull fought a four-year campaign in Minnesota and Dakota. When Red Cloud essentially retired in the wake of the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, Sitting Bull became one of the most prominent members of the Lakota tribe and arguably the most prominent member. He led his band of Hunkpapa west from Dakota into Montana and joined with other bands like Crazy Horses Oglala and the Northern Cheyenne. The combined force of warriors who refused to submit to the U.S. fought back the railroad survey crews and their army escorts in 1872 and 1873. They kept largely to themselves in 1874 and 1875, while the army focused its expeditions on confirming the existence of gold in the Black Hills. But in early 1876, the American government issued its ultimatum, and the prospect of war grew stronger each day. By the first week of June, the signs were undeniable. Small groups of warriors had been harassing soldiers to the west for two weeks. Sitting Bull's vision earlier in the spring foretold soldiers encroaching from the east, and now there was news of an American army moving up from the south. When the village set up a new camp along the Rosebud from June 4th through June 7th, Sitting Bull decreed it was time for his Hunkpapa band to hold its most sacred ceremony, the Sundance. On a patch of land selected for the ritual, Sitting Bull sat at the base of a tall lodgepole and impassively endured a sacrifice to the Great Spirit, Wakan Tonka, that was called a scarlet blanket. Sitting Bull's adopted brother, Jumping Bull, used an awl to pierce one of Sitting Bull's arms and remove 50 small pieces of flesh that were the size of match heads. When Jumping Bull finished with one arm, he gave the same treatment to the other. After about a half an hour, blood streamed down Sitting Bull's arms from his shoulders to his fingertips. The pain must have been searing, but Sitting Bull rose to his feet and began to dance. He raised his face to the sky and danced around the lodgepole. For hours, he defied hunger and thirst and pain until he stopped suddenly and stared up at the heavens. As he stood motionless, he received a second vision about the coming conflict with the white soldiers. When Sitting Bull's strength finally gave out, members of his band helped him to the ground. He whispered his vision to those around him. He had seen a multitude of soldiers and horses falling upside down into a village. A voice told him the soldiers had no ears. He saw warriors falling upside down into the village as well, but their numbers were few. The assembled Lakota and Cheyenne interpreted the vision to mean the tribes would have a great victory over the white soldiers. They rejoiced over the vision, and less than two weeks later, they put it to the test. 
the village continued to move south along the Rosebud until it shifted west to a small creek that flowed into the greasy Grass River, a waterway that the white population called the Little Bighorn. Buffalo had been spotted near the creek, and the tribes changed direction to follow the herd. The village was there along the creek when two Cheyenne hunting parties galloped into camp with news of a large force of soldiers to the south. It was June 16th, less than two weeks after Sitting Bull's Sundance. The chiefs met in a tribal council and continued to advise a course of patient avoidance, but the younger warriors were having none of it. With no hope of restraining the warriors, the chiefs relented, and nearly every male of fighting age prepared himself for battle. They donned their finest war clothes. They loaded rifles and cartridge belts. They secured their medicine pouches full of charms that would protect them in combat. And some, like Sitting Bull's nephew, White Bull, fastened majestic bonnets of red and white eagle feathers to their heads. When the warriors were outfitted, they climbed onto their ponies and rode all night to meet the Wyoming Column near the mouth of Rosebud Creek. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse rode with them. Sitting Bull was too weak to fight, and as an old man chief, he wasn't expected to, but he could certainly motivate. On the morning of June 17th, the soldiers of the Wyoming Column broke camp and resumed their march to Rosebud Creek with no idea that roughly 700 warriors were bearing down on them. After about an hour, the column spotted the Rosebud, which was only a thin stream in the grass in that part of southern Montana. Crook paused the march to take a break. The stream flowed into a canyon, and Crook thought the Lakota camp was at the other end of the canyon, about eight miles away. The soldiers unsaddled their horses and started to relax. Some put up tents to block the sun. Crook and some of his officers played a game to pass the time. Some of the Crow and Shoshone scouts raced their ponies as if they were out on the plains with no one around for miles. Less than an hour later, they heard gunshots. The advance scouts galloped back into camp and yelled the warning. The Lakota were coming. In fact, the Lakota and Cheyenne were right behind them. The scouts led the warriors straight into Crook's position. 700 screaming warriors rushed toward the camp. The Crow and Shoshone rushed to the front to meet their hated enemies. More than a few soldiers credited the bravery of the Crow and Shoshone with keeping the battle from becoming a rout. There was no coordinated plan. The Lakota and Cheyenne simply swarmed the area. It was a maelstrom of roaring guns, thundering hooves, and shrieking men and animals. The Battle of the Rosebud surged back and forth. It flowed in waves over meadows, hills, and ravines. The warriors charged and retreated, then regrouped and swept in from different directions. The Wyoming Column fought the same way. Soldiers and scouts attacked, retreated, pivoted to new positions, and attacked again. The battle raged back and forth for six hours, which was nearly unheard of in that part of the country. Typically, a Native American attack focused on one big assault, and if that didn't get the job done right away, the warriors retreated and lived to fight another day. But this was different. The Lakota warriors under Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, and the Cheyenne warriors, like the fabled dog soldiers, stayed in constant contact with their enemy. The battle was a seemingly endless series of small engagements that were spread over a wide area, many of which were conducted at the speed of galloping horses. The native ponies were smaller and faster than the army horses, and they swerved through the soldiers with incredible agility. The superior horsemanship and the advantage of the faster ponies were on display during the highlight that gave the battle its name for the Cheyenne. A Cheyenne warrior named Chief Comes in Sight charged the soldiers and made bravery runs in front of their lines. As he dashed back and forth, 
a soldier shot the warrior's horse, and Chief comes in sight, crashed to the ground. At the sight of the fallen warrior, a young woman called Buffalo Calf Road Woman raced out from the Cheyenne lines. She galloped toward Chief comes in sight, while army rifle fire slammed into the ground all around her. She scooped him up, pulled him onto the back of her pony, and rushed back to the relative safety of the Cheyenne lines. In the Cheyenne tradition, the supreme act of bravery was said to have inspired the rest of the warriors to renew their fight when the engagement seemed to have turned against them. Buffalo Calf Road Woman had rescued her brother, Chief Comes in Sight, from certain death. Later, when the Cheyennes sang of the battle, they referred to it as, where the girl saved her brother. While the fighting was still hot, General Crook set up a command post on a nearby hill and tried to bring some organization to the battle. After several hours of combat, he believed his larger force was gaining control of the struggle. He rightly assumed the village was close. That was why the warriors were fighting so ferociously without retreating. Crook ordered half his cavalry to disengage and rush up the Rosebud to find the village. But that made them an easy target. Warriors shifted their focus to the cavalry and moved in. At the same time as they attacked the cavalry unit, they took aim at Crook's hilltop headquarters. Crook's position appeared to be in jeopardy, but the Shoshone scouts hurried to the rescue and turned back the warriors. After six hours of furious fighting, the warriors had halted all attempts by the soldiers to penetrate the canyon that led to the village. During the all-night ride to engage the U.S. Army, the warriors had stopped only once, at dawn, to rest and water their ponies. The men and their mounts were now exhausted. They broke off the attack and melted back into the landscape. They began the long ride back to the village, and although they were tired and hungry, they already composed songs of their great victory. Crook wanted to pursue the warriors, but his scout said no. If the village was back in the canyon, as Crook suspected, then the entrance to the canyon would be the perfect place for an ambush. The Crow scouts said they wouldn't ride into a trap. Reluctantly, Crook agreed to stay where they were for the night. As the soldiers made camp, they buried their dead. Crook officially reported 10 killed and 20 wounded. He estimated about 100 casualties on the Native American side, but he also estimated that his men fired 25,000 rounds to inflict those 100 casualties. He then deduced that he couldn't continue his march. If the marksmanship of his troops was so poor that the ratio was going to be 250 bullets for every killed or injured warrior, his men needed more ammo. His wagon train with the bulk of the food and ammunition was more than 30 miles behind him at yesterday's camp on Goose Creek. The next day, June 18th, the Wyoming column trudged back to its base camp. A few days later, Crook lost most of his Crow and Shoshone scouts. They fought bravely and tenaciously, but they were disgusted by the Army's performance at the Battle of the Rosebud, and they went home. The soldiers settled into camp and stayed there for six weeks, during which time they completely missed the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Thanks for listening to this preview of my book, The Summer of 1876. If you want to place a pre-order, you can follow the link in the written summary of this episode. And remember, signed copies are available. When you click on the link, use the button for changing hands. That's our local independent bookstore here in Phoenix. I'll be signing copies there in just a couple weeks, so get your orders in quickly. Thanks again. See you soon. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, 
Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.